It just occurred to me the irony of that last scene having a bulldog on it. So uh, anyway, I'm in mourning this morning, uh, but Merry Christmas anyway. Uh, my name is Todd, for those of you I don't know, and I'm really glad that you're here today, whether you're watching online uh, or whether you're on the backstage patio or here in the house, really glad that you guys are here today. How many of you would say that you have had a moment of stress already in the holiday season? You don't have to show your hands unless you want to. I'm going to raise mine. How many of you have had a moment of stress or maybe a little bit of frustration during this season already? Yeah, a little bit. Yep, I've had it too. Um, so, uh, you know, this is the time of year that is so conflicted in so many ways because it is a time of year where we celebrate the birth of the Savior and we talk about joy and we talk about peace and we look forward to His coming. And yet at the same time, we have the stress of family coming in and no room at the inn at your house. And we have like the stress of buying presents and we have the stress of having enough money to pay for the presents or we have the stress of paying off the credit card by January 21st because we've spent too much. And so uh, we all have this time of year, we have tension and we have stress. And if truth be told, this time of year is such an interesting, conflicted kind of ironic time of year because it is supposed to be the time that we're focused on the birth of the Savior. And unfortunately, in our Western world, we get caught up so much in the trappings, and it's easy to do. And I think we all probably come to it a time or two in our lives. There's a survey that came out actually in 2019. Now realize this was 2019. What was 2019 before? Yeah. Mm-hmm, COVID-19. All right, we won't say anything. All right, so it was conducted by one poll commissioned by Joy Organics, and it revealed how stressful this time of year can be. 77% of 2,000 Americans that were surveyed, uh, they said that they have a very hard time relaxing during this time of year, during the holidays, and they usually end up feeling more stressed and worn down than any other time of the year. 56% says that the extra financial strain uh, uh, brought on by the holidays is <clears throat> their biggest source of anxiety. Some other sources of anxiety, 48% said finding gifts for everyone. Um, there's still time, don't worry, don't panic, all right? 35% says the stress of family is the number one reason. 29% says putting up decorations is the biggest source of stress. How many of you are with me on that? All right, and I want to say thank you to those of you who put up these amazing decorations here in our church, and an extra thanks, because I fit in that 29%. Thank you guys so much. For those of you, seriously, of you who helped out with that. Uh, yes, an incredible 88% of respondents to this survey believe the holidays are the most stressful time of year, but 84% of people say that they have feelings of stress that start in November, all right? 67% seem to be placing unnecessary pressure on themselves to produce the perfect holiday season. 47% admit they, can, uh, they usually take on more than they can handle. 43% says their schedules become jam-packed, and 59% characterize their typical holiday season as chaotic. Why, then, do we sing it's the most wonderful time of the year? That's my question. Why do we say it's the most wonderful time of the year? Because it's supposed to be. In addition to that, the survey went on to talk about how people can lose control. The average American will have six family arguments between Thanksgiving and New Year's. And I know what some of you are thinking. 
that's not enough, right? That is way too low. So here's the reason why. Here's the top reasons why. 20% say that they argue about how much money to spend on on other people. I love that it says other people, right? They don't argue about how much money to spend on themselves. It's about other people, right? 20% says they argue about how much money to spend on their parents. I thought that was so funny. Maybe not funny, but uh, ironic. 18% what presents to buy. Uh, 16% which family members to visit during the holidays. And 16% where to go on Christmas Day. And I don't know about you, but I think that it's this time of year that reveals sometimes our biggest fears and our biggest insecurities. Because let's face it, that's what pressure does, doesn't it? That's what stress does. It puts us in a place where it reveals our biggest insecurities and our greatest fears. And today, we're going to be taking a look at a character in this series called So This Is Christmas. It's week two, and we're going to be taking a look at a character who um, some of you probably know, some of you may not know him too well, but he's really the antagonist of the Christmas story. Now, if you know anything about Jesus' life, you know that as Jesus' life developed and as his ministry developed, there would come into his life more and more and more antagonists, more and more and more people who were Jesus' enemies. But at his birth, there was one person who was the enemy of Jesus, and it was King Herod. And if you don't know much about King Herod, he may be in the background a bit, but he is an important part of the story. And my prayer today is, is that as we read God's word, that you and I would learn from this one, who because life was spinning out of control, he himself found that he was spinning out of control as well. So if you would join me, I'm going to pray that God would lead us and guide us as we study Matthew chapter 2 today. So would you join me as we pray? Father, I just pray in the strong name of Jesus that you would lead us and guide us today. Father, as we take a look at this character that, to be quite honest, is not the most comforting, not the the best looking from a far character in the story, of your son's birth, but perhaps we can learn from him how we can handle stress. And Father, I pray right now for everybody in this room, everybody who's listening to my voice, God, I pray that you would um, take whatever we came into this moment with that may be putting pressure on us, whether it's financial or relationships or God, worry about something that's going to happen in the future or that might happen in the future. God, whether it's uh, just knowing that we've got the next few weeks to finish what we need to finish, or maybe there's a job situation. God, whatever it is that is heavy on us right now, I pray that you would bring that to mind. And Father, I pray that you would relieve that. God, that you would help us through that. And that we can learn from this one who didn't handle himself well on the pressure was on. Lead us right now. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Reading from Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read verses really 1 through about 12 or so. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're really picking up from where we left off last week as we talked about uh, what we can learn from the life of Joseph there at the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king 
of the Jews. I'm going to come back to this verse, verse 2, in a few minutes because it's a very critical and important verse in this story. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, I just want to point out that these wise men are coming, asking, where is this Jesus who was born? And they refer to him as king of the Jews. And the ironic part of this is that they are asking the man who he believes is king of the Jews. All right, so right there out of the gates, you can understand maybe a little bit of tension that might be building because they're asking the very man who thinks that he is the king of the Jews. And I'll explain more about that in a few minutes. Matthew 2, 3 through 8. When, king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, those were the Jewish leaders of the day, he inquired of them where the Christ had been born. Uh, was to be born. They had told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now look what happens in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's trying to jive what he heard from the Jewish leaders with what the wise men had seen. He's trying to make sure that this lines up. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, listen to this, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, so far in the story, do you think, King Herod is really being truthful about worshiping Jesus? No way. No way. All of a sudden, King Herod's life flashed before him, I promise you. And you'll understand that here in a few minutes. And he is trying to trick these wise men into letting him know where Jesus is so that he can go and not worship him, but put him to death. Get rid of him because he is threatened. Matthew 2, 9 through 12. We'll keep reading. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, it says that they, were, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. Side note here, it says house because in reality, the reality is, is that Jesus was probably born in the bottom floor of a house, not a stable. I may have just ruined Christmas for you. I understand that, all right? So all your nativity scenes, there's potential that it's wrong, okay? So anyway, um, you, you'll be asking me about that later, I guarantee you. So anyway, it's not the point of the story, okay? They had seen the star when it rose, and before them, they came to where it rests over the place. They saw the star, they're exceedingly glad. Verse 11, and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. Now I'm going to skip around to verse 16. And basically in verses 13 through 15, Joseph and Mary and Jesus packed up and they went to Egypt. And they basically uh, went to Egypt and, and uh, sought safety there. And in verse 16, here's what we see. And this is where the story comes together. Verse 16. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became, what's it say? Furious. Furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Merry Christmas. Have a great year. I'll see you in the new year. This is not the most wonderful time of the year, is it? At all in this story. It's pretty troubling, actually. It's deeply troubling. This man, King Herod, he he was faced with something, and in a moment, all of his life flashed before him, and because his life spun so wildly out of control in this moment, he spun out of control himself. We don't know a whole lot from the Bible other than the gospel uh, passages about King Herod, but we know a lot from extra-biblical accounts that are historical and true. And this was the recipe, this guy was the recipe of someone whose fuse was incredibly short. And it was burning to the end. And it only took one thing for him to spin wildly out of control. I want to tell you a little bit about some of these extra-biblical accounts. He, he was, one thing is, is he was a good builder. He was a visionary. He probably was very diplomatic and probably had, like, a good personality. I think people liked him, except the Jewish people of that region did not like that he was king because they wanted a king who was a full-blooded Jew. King Herod was not that. He was not a full-blooded Jew. He was someone who grew up as, with Roman influence and in the Roman culture. And in fact, he didn't have a drop of Jewish blood in him. The only reason that he claimed that he was Jewish was his grandfather converted to Judaism. That was the only reason that he could claim that. Later on in his life, he also married someone who was um, of Jewish descent. He had a dark side. He built fortresses. In fact, archaeologists, I love this, archaeologists wanted to prove verse 16 wrong because there are very few indicators in history of this mass suicide of young babies in the region. And so they wanted to disprove this. They wanted to to prove that the Bible was not true. And so they went and they searched and they found um, places that, and, and, um, you know, Uh, places that King Herod had built, and they know that because of the archaeology and the time. And actually, in their study of all these different fortresses, they found out that it is very, very highly likely that verse 16 is actually true. Secular archaeologists found that out. So we know that what happened here is absolutely true. These fortresses were built in, in amazing ways. There were two of them in particular, Herodium and Masada. They were built to not be penetrated. They were impenetrable. They were built in a way there were secret uh, you know, uh, stashes and arsenals of, of weaponry that could have lasted for years of wars. And in these fortresses, he would host people and he'd have these great feasts with different people and different kings and influencers all across the region. And he would host them. And behind the fortress where he was hosting them, they didn't know it because there were those secret fortresses. He built aqueducts that were way before their time so that he could have water running into these fortresses that he built where he could stay for months and perhaps even years if the worst happened. He even had a system of mirrors where they would indicate from one fortress to the other if enemies were coming. 
so it would alert them. One archaeologist said that even mirrored his insecurity and how out of control he was and how brutal he was as a man. Josephus, the historian, even describes King Herod as paranoid and violent. He, he ruled with harshness and a ruthlessness. And so this was a man who was wildly afraid. But my question is why? Why was he so afraid? He was born into power and privilege. His dad rubbed shoulders and had, well, actually was a close friend to Julius Caesar. He, his father was the prime minister of Judea. His mother was a princess from Petra. His family, his grandfather rubbed shoulders with the likes of Pompey and Julius Caesar, Octavian, Mark Antony, Cleopatra. This was a guy who was well-connected and he was born into the right kind of family. And he was introduced to politics very early. At 25 years old, he became the governor of Galilee. He had a wife and a, and a son. And this guy seemed to have it all. So why was he so afraid? Why did he have so much fear that led him to be so insecure and even some historians say was incredibly paranoid? Well, it had to do with the fact that the subjects that he oversaw in his region as governor, they were all Jewish. And a lot of people believe that they didn't really acknowledge him as the rightful king, the rightful governor. He was not the king of the Jews. And they would tell him that, and some of the leaders would even remind him that there's one coming that is going to be king of the Jews, a full-blooded Jewish man who would lead God's people and, and, and be the savior of the world and be that Messiah. And so you can imagine when the wise men visited him that day and said, the king of the Jews has been born, all of a sudden his world came crashing down on him. All of a sudden, everything that he always thought and had the fear of, all of a sudden, in an instant, it realized, he realized this may be coming true. And he tried to tighten his control, and he met in secret, and he tried to get them to go find Jesus and indicate where he was. And the more and more and more he grabbed on to power and control, the more he lost it. Have you ever been there before? You ever been there before? Trying to control someone, trying to control something, trying to grasp on so tightly that all of a sudden you realize that you're the one that's out of control. See, our attempts to control everything and everyone around us it doesn't lead to peace, does it? <laughs> it doesn't lead to peace. Our attempts to control everything and everyone around us may actually cause us to be the ones that end up spiraling out of control ourselves. In this holiday season, in holiday seasons, when we have so much pressure and so much stress and so many things to think about in addition to regular life, can just be a cross-section, a microcosm of life itself. Or one little thing can put us over the top and we lose control. And so today I want us to, to learn what we can from this antagonist at Jesus' birth? What can we learn from a guy like King Herod? Because let's face it, our spinning out of control is probably not what King Herod did in verse 16, right? Right? Hopefully not. You're not agreeing with me enough. I'm a little worried right now. All right, so like our spinning out of control is probably not going to be what he did. But we can do it in our own way, right? We can spin out of control in our own way. 
We can look good on the outside. We can be hosting all the parties. We can be the, the one that is supposed to be diplomatic and behind the scenes. We're hanging on by a thread. And there's three things I want us to learn today. The first is this. I want you to hear this today. No one, no one, no one, no one's immune from this. None of us are immune to losing control when, when life spins out of control. In some ways, you and I, we don't even know what the one thing may be that just pushes us over the top. And if you're here today or you're watching or you're, you're with me today and you're saying, I'm just not that kind of person. I'm not the person that spins out of control. I've got it all under control and life doesn't affect me that way. If you're the person saying that, you're the one we're most worried about. <laughs> and I know this because I've been there. I know this because I've fallen victim to this one too many times. No one is immune to losing control. None of us are immune to losing control when our life spins out of control. And the more that we try to control the world around us when it's spinning out of control, the more we lose control ourselves. We can't think that this won't happen to us. We can't think that this is not something that I'm going to struggle with. Romans 3.10 tells us, the Apostle Paul says, as it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. We're all susceptible to all sin. We're all susceptible to losing control. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says that pride goes before. I want you to see this from the ESV. What does it say? Destruction. How did we learn it? It says we learned it. Pride goes before what? A fall. That's how we learned it. A lot of us learned it. But it says the ESV says, pride goes before what? Destruction. Destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. So I say this with all humility. Whether we say it internally or externally, I could never do that. It's the most dangerous place we can be. It's the most dangerous place that we can be. You've probably heard the phrase, I've used it so many times I can't even count, but for the grace of God go I. Have you heard that phrase before? It's an interesting phrase. I used to use it all the time, and then I realized um, the story behind it is uh, an evangelist by the name of John Bradford is said to have said it as he was watching men in chains that were being led to the gallows to be killed for their crimes. And as they passed the place that he was standing, he uttered those words in Old English, not the way we say it today. He said, but for the grace of God, go I. So let's not trick ourselves into thinking that we can't or won't fall victim to being out of control when life spins out of control. The second thing I want you to learn today, secondly, is that God is working behind the scenes of whatever is out of control in your life. And I'm preaching to me today as much as anyone else. That God is working behind the scenes. What we view as out of control is actually God in control. 
What we view as out of control, as spinning out of control, is actually God in control. Whether we've made the out of control situation or whether someone else has forced it upon us. What we view as out of control, God is working in the background. And our job is, is not to try to control the situation, but to trust God. That he is working behind the scenes. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I love it when uh, the Bible talks about Jesus' disciples showing up on the scene because there's going to be some kind of drama that follows, all right? So it happens all the time. And Jesus was talking to them about what would happen next because they were always asking those types of questions. What's next? And in verse 17 of John 5, he's telling them, and he said, he's telling them, Jesus, he answered them saying, my father is working until now and I am working also. Jesus is essentially telling them that come what may, whatever happens, I'm at work. And the Father, God, the Father's at work. And so whatever you're facing, that's true as well. More about the future in John 13, 7, he says to them, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And so whatever situation you may be going through right now that is, has your world spinning out of control, I, I want to encourage you to not fear. Our family was doing a Christmas devotional this year, and two days ago when we did it, um, Cynthia was reading this devotional. It's a great little devotional. And uh, it, it said that uh, do not fear is the number one command. It's the, the most uh, noted command in the Bible. But so often we are just filled with fear and worry and anxiety. Listen, I want you to know that whatever circumstances you may be facing today, what stuff you have to deal with when you get home from church this afternoon, what circumstances you you may have in your life, uh, whether it's Christmas-related or work-related or students at school, whatever that is, the fear of something in the future, God is at work in the background. He's at work in the background. And the third thing that I want us to learn today is not only that we're all, none of us are immune, we need to understand and trust that God is working in the background, but we've got to learn what to do when life spins out of control. And there are some of you that are going to say, what I'm about ready to tell you is the most simple, overly simplified version of whatever we could learn from God's word. But here's the problem. I think the last two years have shown us and told us that we as Christ followers in the midst of crisis spin out of control as easy as anyone else, right? The world is falling apart. And the church should be the rock. And the fact is, is that all the chaos and all the problems in the world has divided the church. We can do better, Christ follower. We can do better. And so it may be simple. I still think we've got a lot to learn. What do we do when circumstances beyond our control spin out of control? First thing, we've got to learn what it means to just Stop. Stop in the moment. Stop in the midst of the crisis. Stop when the pressure is mounting. Stop when the tension is building. Stop before the problem comes. We've got to learn, myself included, just to stop. 
Because part of the problem is we see it in Herod's life. We see it in ours. So we don't stop when the pressure mounts. And so we end up doing something or saying something that we regret for a lifetime. We make poor choices when we don't stop when the pressure builds. We've got to stop. And the second thing we have to do is retreat. We've got to retreat. I know some of you don't like hearing that because retreat is a bad word in today's culture, isn't it? I had a pastor friend, it was our previous pastor that I had. He said, hey, at this church, we're not going to go on staff retreats. We're going to go on staff advances. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I'm buying into that. That's really cool. And it is. But we need to personally sometimes stop and retreat. And retreating doesn't mean giving up. Retreating isn't an admission that we've lost, like my Bulldogs did in about the end of the third quarter yesterday, last night. <laughs> it's not an admission that it's, it's all done. It's just removing ourselves from a potentially bad situation where we're going to make bad choices and bad decisions. Jesus often retreated, and he did the last thing, and that's pray. We've got to stop and retreat and pray. Imagine if Herod had done that. Imagine if King Herod had had the wits about himself to stop in the moment when the pressure was building, when he saw his life flash in front of him, when he heard that there was another who was the king of the Jews. And what if he had just stepped back from the situation and just hit his knees. What if we did that? Our life would be radically different, wouldn't it? If when faced with difficult circumstances and pressure and tension, we would stop and retreat and pray. Jesus did this in the normal course of his life, and he did it in the pressure of his life. Luke 5, 16 says that he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And by the way, as you read the sentence structure, you understand that this is not a one-time thing because it says that he would withdraw and go to a desolate place. And he would pray. Mark 1.35 says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and then he prayed. And some of you are saying the problem with that is he did it early in the morning and I'm a night person. I'm not a morning person. Fine, do it at night. But Jesus had a rhythm to life. Listen, I don't want you to miss this. Please don't miss this. I know we've talked about it before, but I think I miss this. We as Christ followers miss this. Jesus, God's Son, who is all man and yet all God, who is perfectly divine, who was here on a mission and he knew his mission, he actually retreated to pray to his Father. If Jesus, God's Son, did that, I need it too. To be able to stand up to the pressure when life spins out of control. And then we see it in his most pressure-filled moment before he went to the cross. Matthew 26, 36 through 39. Jesus went with them, his disciples, there they are again, I love it, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, this reminds me when my kids are young, sit here 
while I go over there and pray. <laughs> How many times as a parent when your kids are little you say, sit here, sit here. I need, dad needs some alone time. Mom needs some alone time. Sit here and pray. Jesus and his disciples are like me and my kids. Maybe I'm the only one think it's funny. 37, verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, two of his closest disciples, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Hmm. Jesus, God's son, was sorrowful and he was troubled. I want you to hear it's okay for you to be sorrowful and troubled about situations. If Jesus was filled with sorrow and he was troubled about what he knew was about ready to happen, it's okay. Give yourself grace. Give yourself grace. There are going to be times that you're going to be filled with sorrow. You're going to be filled with sorrow. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, I love that. He gets even further from the other disciples. And he has four disciples in, or three disciples in front of them so that he gets even further. He goes even further. And he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Listen, Jesus in his most pressure-packed moment retreated. He stopped, he retreated, and he prayed. And if he needs that, then we need it all the much more, don't we, church? Don't we, Christ follower? How many of you came in here today and you say, man, the reason I lost control last week or last month or last year is because I'm empty. I'm empty. I've been there. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's because I was empty. The reason that I had those thoughts or the reason that I said those things or the reason I acted that way to my, you know, to my boss and got fired from my job, the reason I lost that friend was because the pressure was mounting and I was empty. We don't have to be empty. We can be full. We can be filled. We have to be with Jesus to be filled. There's a story about the Rose Bowl parade. I had this plan because I was excited that my Georgia Bulldogs would win and I could talk confidently about college football, but that didn't happen. Anyway, I'm going to give you the illustration anyway. It's from a Max Lucado book from years ago uh, called God Came Near. And it was a New Year's Day years and years ago, and it was a Tournament of Roses parade. A beautiful float suddenly sputtered and quit right in the middle of the parade. It was out of gas. And the whole parade was held up until someone with a gas tank came and filled it up. Well, the amusing thing about this is that that float that ran out of gas was represented by the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> So, Christ follower, even you can be spiritually empty. Even I can be spiritually empty, but we don't have to be empty. We can be filled up to full. We can be filled up to full, and we can find rest and peace in the arms of our Savior. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all of you, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you, say that last word with me, rest. 
I will give you rest. Isaiah 43, the prophet says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And that's the kind of life that we can have when we stop, when we retreat, and when we pray, when the pressure mounts. The subtitle of this message series, So This Is Christmas, is how do we live our lives and manage our lives when our expectation doesn't meet our experience? My prayer for us as a church, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that as the pressure builds, not just in Christmas, but in our lives, that we would be people that would be in control instead of out of control. That we would be people in the moment and in the daily life would stop and retreat and pray when the pressure builds. And Father, I pray right now in the strong name of Jesus that you would be with those who are listening myself included. God, that you would be with us and guide us in those moments when we are weak and when we are out of gas, when we're running on empty. And so many times, this is the time of year where we feel like we're running on empty. God, I pray in the strong name of Jesus that you would be with us that we would seek you out, that we would stop and that we would retreat and that we would pray, that we wouldn't go off the rails like King Herod did, that we wouldn't allow the, the out-of-control part of life to, to hit our lives so hard that we too are spending out of control making things worse. Father, I pray right now for that person, those people who are in this place, and they just keep grasping at life and trying to hold it tighter and trying to grip stronger and trying to control more and bring it in close and every move they make there's more sand that just spills right through their fingers and they're angry and insecure maybe even paranoid and mad oh just mad God I pray right now that you would give them rest that you would give us rest. Father, I pray that we would realize that we don't have to succumb to an out-of-control life. But we certainly can't be controlled on our own. We certainly can't do any of this by ourselves, in our own power. We need you. We need you. And so help us to stop and to retreat and just to talk to you. As hard as it is, the story about Herod, God, thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for sending your son to save the world, to save me, to save us from our sins. Father, we thank you so much that what we celebrate this Christmas season is joyous. It is peaceful. It is hopeful for the future. Help us to dwell on those things. And help us to get through the pain of what we're currently going through. In Jesus' name, I pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen.